I want, I want to thank uh, Pastor John for uh, preaching this last week. I was on a trip, and it was just fun to be out and, and away and know that the church is well taken care of. And I appreciate uh, everything he did starting our, our series that we're in. And we are in a series. We're calling it Unoffendable. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And then this uh, two weeks ago, uh, one, of, one of the pastors in the assembly is a great pastor down in Little Rock, uh, Rod Loy. He, he put something, I put it on our Facebook just because I thought some people might get some benefit out of it. But in there, he recommended this book, Unoffendable. And in context, what he was talking about is the fact that being a pastor right now is an interesting experience because it seems like, um, you know, we're walking this fine line between, you know, how we do, how we're taking care of the mask issue or not, or, I mean, there's so many issues. I mean, you can, you can be either too much political or not political enough, and, and I get, I, I hear about it all the time. And then another thing that's interesting, and this has always been the case, but this time more than ever, uh, people will forward me something that they feel like I need to see, and I appreciate that. It's not that I don't, it's just what's funny is I'll get it like 10, 15, 20 times. Because I know a lot of people around the country and friends of mine and, and people in ministry and you people here in the church. And so I'll get, I'll get the same forwards over and over and over. And, and, um, and, I, and that's fine. But as part of that, you know, Rod Lloyd, uh, he encouraged us maybe to read a book called Unoffendable by a guy named Brant, Brant Hansen. I never heard of him before. But phenomenal book. I recommend you read it. So a lot of what you'll hear today is kind of taken from that. And then uh, not all of it, but, but some of it. We're going to be looking at uh, three different uh, scripture portions in the next three weeks. So one of them will be this week, but I want to read through all of them so you kind of kind of see where we're going. And I think it'll be very clear. This first one is funny because I used to always quote this verse uh, years ago. We used to, when I was a youth pastor, we'd always play volleyball before church, and they would tease me because every week I would mention this verse. Because one of the things that I always I would always make sure, I want you, whenever you're, you're playing a sport, especially volleyball at church, you better be encouraging. I didn't want anybody disparaging someone's shot or hit or maybe they didn't know how to play as well or that kind of thing. It would be encourage, encourage, encourage. So every week they would always like, okay, pastor, we know it's, it's Ephesians 4.29. So let's look at that verse together. It says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up the one in need and bringing grace to those who listen. Another verse we're going to look at next week would be 1 Peter three fifteen to 16. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. That word defense right there in the Greek is apologia, which is where we get the term apologetics. So a lot of people are confused by that. They think it means to apologize. It's not. It means to defend. But respond with gentleness and respect. In another version, it says, do this in a gentle and respectful way. I love that. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. And then the next verse we'll look at in a couple of weeks is Colossians 4, 5 to 6. Live wisely among those who are non-believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. So you see where we're going, right? So today I want to look at that Ephesians passage. And maybe you've heard this before and maybe not. And if you've never heard it, I want you to, want you to bury, bury this deep in your heart. Never read a Bible verse. You ever heard that before? Sounds kind of contradictory, right? Here's a pastor in church saying don't read a Bible verse. But I mean that. Don't read a Bible verse. What, I, what do I mean? Make sure you read the context. Anything out of context can be a pretext for anything. And you'll see it a lot. I mean, we're going to get into a really heated political season, and almost everything you're going to see is going to probably be out of context to one degree or another from, from everywhere. But especially with Scripture, make sure you know where that Scripture sits and what it means around the other Scriptures. Because all of the Bible, one of the things people don't realize maybe is that the verses and the chapter did, uh, 
definitions, all those were added later. They were added so that we could refer to them and, and find them easier. In the original writings, it wasn't like that. So just like, you know, most of us don't write letters anymore, but back in the day when you would write a letter to somebody, you didn't put verses and, and chapter headings in there. What you did is you wrote the letter and it had a certain flow to it and you probably had a natural introduction and then you probably had some subjects you wanted to cover and as you covered the subjects, you would talk about them and maybe you would refer back to something you had mentioned earlier in the letter and, and maybe not and then you would close it. So a lot of the New Testament is actually letters and the book we're looking at today is a letter written to a church in Ephesus which today would be modern uh, Turkey or Asia Minor is where it would be. So there was a church there. This was a very uh, important church. It was important for a lot of reasons. Number one, it was an important geographic center in the Roman Empire. It was a place that was very prosperous. It was a place where Paul started the church, the Apostle Paul started it, and then he left it to some other people. And eventually, actually, Timothy, who wrote two of the books in the New Testament, was one of Paul's protégés, and he ended up pastoring that church in the later days. It was a very important church. In that church, he writes this to them. Now, we read verse 29. What I'm going to do now is have us look a little ahead of 29 so you understand what he's talking about. One of the things that blows me away is when you look at this all in context, it makes so much more sense why he said, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Anybody grow up with, with kind of a sharp mouth? That's why my mom called my mouth. <laughs> she said, anybody else? She's going to be embarrassed, I tell you this, but anybody else eat soap growing up? Is it just me? Raise your hand if you ever had to eat soap. All right, thank you very much. Um, you know, back then, it depended on what I, what I had said, but um, usually it involved teasing my sister, but, and uh, just, I just, anyway, would usually have to take a bite. Not a big one, but a bite, right? Some of you are looking at me like, this is just barbaric. I get it. I understand. But, but my mom felt like that was appropriate punishment, and I would remember more because it was my mouth. And she would quote this verse to me. You're letting unwholesome communication come out of your mouth. And at the time, that, that phrase didn't have the sting that it probably should have. But I remember years ago, I was mentioning that to some youth. And they're like, well, you had it easy because now we have liquid soap. Think of that. I never thought about that. And they said, yeah, my mom would put like a squirt or two, which is a lot of liquid soap if you think about it. And then you take a little drink and swish it around. Oh, my gosh, no way. But when you first read that passage of scripture, I know all of us were like, well, of course, no one would ever want to say something that's, that's mean or, or hurtful. And of course, you should say things that are helpful in building other people up. But now let's look at the context. Let's, let's hop ahead to verse 25. It says, each of you should put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. We, we are all members of one body. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, do something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. One of the things, I, you know, I, I love social media. I have to be honest with you. 
I love being able to keep up with people. One of the things I did on this trip while I was gone is I, I got to reconnect with a cousin of mine. We grew up in San Diego together. I haven't seen him in 20 years. And he's lived in Casper, Wyoming for almost that long. I haven't seen him in all these years. It was great catching up with him. But I, but I knew a lot about what was going on in his life because of social media, which is great. So it's not like we had to start from scratch. It's not like the old days. And, and you know, I don't know about you, but he's not a cousin I would call on the phone. So this, was, this is how we communicate. But one of the dangers of social media, and there's been a lot of sociological studies on this, one of the problems is people, people don't have the same filter that they would have when they're in person. Have you noticed that? Typically, there's, there's this filter that we all have that when we're in person, there's things we're less likely to say. Now, probably some of you know uh, people that don't have quite the same filter, and whenever you're out to eat with them, you're holding your breath just a little bit because if the food isn't exactly right or somebody says something or the waiter or waitress says something, they might say something that might embarrass you, and we all know how that is. But that, if you just multiply it by 10 or 20, is how a lot of times social media can be because you're not seeing the actual persons out there. And a lot of times you, you say something that can be misread or misunderstood or hurtful and you don't even know the impact that it has until the other person writes back a whole long screed and then you get the... It's, it's ugly. I was talking with a, with a cousin of mine, he, another one, and he's a pastor and he just said he's been so frustrated with the people in his church because of the way they've been reacting about all the things that are going on today and some of the things they've said. And he, he said this, he's got a way with words, he said... When Christians decide that the hill they're going to die on is more important than their witness, there's a problem. I said, can you say that again? I need to write that down. (laughs) Then he said this. He just rolls these things out. It's crazy. He said, if all your Facebook friends know more about your political views than your Christian witness, you've got it backward. I thought about that and I thought, oh my goodness. What's more important than your witness? What are you willing to sacrifice that for? I hope nothing. It's not that you don't have opinions and thoughts. Of course you do. Of course you do. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when it gets to a point where it's not helpful and not building other people up, then you're, you're walking into dangerous territory there. And everybody's judgy these days, right? We're almost in this anger culture where people are outraged about everything. It's our new thing every day, it seems like. And it's, it's, it's interesting because you can almost tell where the outrage started and it just spreads across maybe all the people you know or something and you see their comment. But it's outrage, outrage. But let me just say this in, in, uh, against that, you can choose to be unoffendable. I know that sounds weird. Like, don't I have a right to be offended at certain things? I mean, we all kind of feel that, right? We kind of reserve these certain rights to ourselves. And I think what we forget is Christians, we don't live for ourselves anymore. It's not just you. It's somebody else. I think that's one of the great things about marriage, that it, it civilizes us where it's not just me. I've got to think about other people. There's other people living in the house, and the way we live together matters. And the way we talk and the way we treat each other. And as Christians, we're supposed to be different. There's supposed to be a difference between us and everybody else. I've, I've had people say, you know, they feel entitled to anger. Maybe, maybe you've heard that phrase, righteous anger. I heard somebody say once, so you mean I have to forfeit my right to anger? And I wonder, do you have a right to anger? Do you as a Christian have a right to be angry? I know some of you, maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't we just read a little a minute ago where it said, didn't, didn't the Bible said, be angry and sin not? And people, what they do a lot of times is they take the first part of that verse and they say it gives them license to be angry. What they don't realize is in context, that's not what that verse is talking about. 
It says you're going to be angry because God made us. He knows that's going to happen. But what he also does not want is for us to be controlled or ruled by anger. It's not, it's not, a, it's not an approval of anger, but it's really an admonition to be careful to not let anger control you. He knows we're prone to that. And then that's why it says in that verse, do not give the devil a, str- a, a foothold. Maybe you, maybe you don't realize that a lot of times the New Testament's quoting parts of the Old Testament. And that particular verse is, is, a, is a quotation, a paraphrase of Psalm 4.4, which says, do, do not sin by let, letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. I read that this week and I just laughed out loud. How funny is that? I mean, you think about that whole count to 10 thing or maybe you've heard this. If you're angry, you write an email um, or, or back in the day, write a letter, but write an email, let it set for 24 hours, reread it and then destroy it. That's <laughs> I've heard good, good uh, advice, right? But the scripture was way ahead of us on that. It literally said, uh, do, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and then remain silent. I laughed. Maybe some of you remember Pastor Newby preached a wonderful series about this, talking about how he wanted to get rid of the buttons that he had. And he talked about how, you know, many of us walk around and we have these little buttons. And if somebody pushes the wrong button, you know, we might explode or we might have a a bad thought or an an angry attitude. And different people had access to different buttons, right? You you probably live with somebody who has um, access to certain buttons on you that other people don't. So someone at home might say something and you react angrily, but then somebody at work or someone else at school or everywhere else you are, you would just let it go right off the back, roll right off the back of your head because it's not the same. Another term that's maybe more common today is the whole idea about being triggered. And we get triggered by different things all the time or microaggressions. I mean, what that is is the enemy gaining a foothold in your heart and in your mind. And being able to control you with anger and to control your emotions. I think it's interesting, though, because it seems like we do like to be angry, don't we? It's almost like we feel like a right to it and we hold on to it because it helps us in a way feel superior to somebody else. I have this thing. They did this thing to me. And so now I'm angry and I have a right to it and I can, I'm better than them in some way. It gives us a sense of superiority. Have you ever had a disagreement with somebody and then you, the person apologizes and you realize, man, I'm still mad. Why am I still mad? They said they were sorry. It's like we hold on to it. It sinks into us and changes who we are. Have you noticed this, that, um, that you always feel like you're right? Please. I know I'm always right, right? Why would we even be disagreeing if you didn't think you were right and I didn't think I was right? Of course we. That's how disagreements work. We both think we're right. The problem is, you know, a lot of times is we're not always right. And for a lot of people, I've noticed this, you know, a lot of, maybe especially guys, you know, I think even that's why scripture says, like, there's one part where it says, you know, you know wives respect your husbands because guys have this issue with respect. I've noticed a lot of people talk about how, like, maybe you're on the highway and someone cuts them off. And why do you get upset? Because you feel disrespected because that was your part of the lane. As if I own any of the freeway. Do I own anything? No. Or people, says something, people say something to me, or give you a certain look, and what is that? I mean, you feel disrespected at some level, as if I deserve to be treated a certain way, and you aren't, you aren't measuring up. The problem with all of that is anger is emo- an emotion. And all of our emotions are subject. I mean, you can't really trust them. Think about this. Grace isn't for the worthy. Did you hear that? Grace isn't for worthy people. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. 
So you feel like you're, you have a right to your anger and you feel like you have a right to be offended. But the truth is, God gave us grace and he forgave us so that we're supposed to extend that to others. Did you deserve it? <laughs> Thank you. One person's like, no. No, none of us deserved it. No wonder. No, we don't deserve it. And it, Look at this. Uh, John's verse that he used last week is the perfect verse. Proverbs 19.11. I'm reading this out of the NIV. A person's wisdom yields patience. Patience is almost the opposite of anger and offense. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. That verse is so heavy. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. In other words, uh, we have a choice. You're offended. Something happens. It doesn't, you don't like what's going on. You have a choice. I can be offended I can choose not to be offended. It's not an easy choice, but it's to your glory to overlook an offense. What's this all about? The idea is that you're not supposed to harbor anger. Anger eats at you. It it corrupts you from the inside out. It it changes your attitude. I remember going through all this with my my leg. I've got a prosthetic leg and all that. I remember I've been in a lot of hospitals. I've been in a lot of therapy. And a lot of times I noticed that the people there were angry. They're angry. Part of it is they're in pain, and pain makes you angry. I don't know if anybody's had that. It just makes you irritable. You're hurting. You're hurting. Everything hurts, and so it makes you angry. I think part of it also is you feel like at some level it's unfair, and you don't deserve it, and you, you, you hate that you're walking the road you're, hate, you're walking, and so it just makes you angry. It makes you difficult to be around. And what God is saying is here is we don't, we're not really owed anything, and with all of that, you need to give up that anger. Give it away. All anger is all anger wrong. Is it ever okay to be angry? Anytime I've thought this, there's a story in the Bible that comes to mind almost immediately. And I would expect that some of you would think of it the same story. Is it ever okay to be angry? Can you think of an example in Scripture where Jesus was angry? The money changers, right? Okay, well, let me just ask you. Did, did he tell us to go do that next? Did he tell us to have the same attitude? I mean, what was that story about? The whole point was, when he did that, he said... My house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And it's a deeper story anyway because what was happening is they were doing the money change because people would travel a long way. They had to pay the temple tax with a temple-approved coin that would have been a silver coin, different than the normal coinage. So they would have had to change for that. They would have also probably been buying and selling uh, animals to sacrifice. The problem was they had set up that market in what was known as the court of the Gentiles and the women. They had no access to the, to the temple then because it was taken over by this money-changing area. So there's a deeper meaning there where Jesus clears that out. But here's what you need to hear today. He is the only one who has a right to righteous anger. He's the only one righteous. We feel righteous because we feel like we're always in the right. But the truth is, he's the only one that's, that's really the only one who knows the truth. He's the only one who's the righteous one who can righteously be angry. He's the only one. <laughs> Look at this verse in Colossians chapter 3. There's another book that, uh, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. It says, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice behavior, slander, and dirty language. You know what's interesting about this portion of Scripture? Remember I said don't ever read. Don't ever read a verse. Remember? <clears throat> Let's not read it here, just one verse either. Because you, you catch all of that that's in there? Look at all the other things that's grouped together with these things that Paul is saying don't do. He says, put to death, this is in verse number five, so we just, we just read one of those verses. So put to death the sinful and earthly things lurking within you. 
Do you ever think about your anger as being sinful and lurking? It is. Have you nothing to, uh, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires? Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of the world, but now it's time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and its wicked deeds. Put on your mature new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this life, he says, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Race isn't the issue here. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Again, religion's not the issue here. Barbaric or uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Anger's a big deal. He puts it in context as a big, big deal. So you might be sitting here and you're thinking, but wait a minute, I, I'm, the, I'm the victim here. Some, I, I've got a really a good reason to be angry, and you probably do. I don't know if you can live a, a full life on earth and not be offended like, or have reason to be offended. I'm not saying that. I'm not even trying to minimize the things that have been done to us. I'm not. There are grievances everywhere. You might be thinking, but you don't know what they did or said. or You don't know. Can you be angry at the sin? Yeah, I think you can. Do you ever think of this? I read this this week and it stopped me in my tracks. I had to ponder it for, for, for a long time. God took his anger at sin out on Jesus to set you free. Do you realize that the people you're angry with, Jesus did the same thing for them? That he took his anger at their sin out on Jesus to set them free. I think what the problem is, a lot of times we think it's about us, and it's not. It's about him, and it's about them. And when you love people like Jesus does, then it's difficult to be angry at him anymore because you can't help but see them as sinners like we're sinners. And Brendan Manning, he's written a lot of books. He's, uh, he, he, in one of his books, he, called, he says, it's, it's, it's like we're all beggars just showing the other beggars how to get to the bread. I like to think I'm better than everybody. Of course, we all do that. But the truth is, none of us have a right to any of that. You know, you know what else is interesting about this? is, Really, God is the only righteous judge. He's the only one who can judge. So do you trust him to judge it or not? Because only he can judge. Look at, look at this. This is another one of Paul's books to the Colossians. It's in chapter 4, verse 3. As for me, it matters very little how I am going to be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point, he says. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. Do you hear what he said? My conscience is clear, but it doesn't prove I'm right. How many of you thought that? I, I, I don't feel bad about it. I, th- I think I did the right thing. I'm fine. <laughs> this is Paul saying, my conscience is clear, but it doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring out the darkest secrets to light. He will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each uh, one whatever praise is due. We don't even know our own motives most of the time, let alone other people's. Have you noticed this? Sometimes when I hear a story or hear something, I'm thinking, man, you're right. That's horrible. Then you hear the other side. Have you ever had that happen? Who, whose side do you usually hear first when you're angry? It's kind of a trick question yours <laughs> right so you're always going to be right i mean you only all you know really is your side so of course you're right in proverbs 18 17 uh, the, the proverbs the wisdom literature there says the first to speak in court always sounds right until the cross-examination begins 
How many times have you heard a news story and then you thought, oh my gosh, and then you hear the rest of the story and you're like, oh, well, that changes it a little bit. Because it happens. Usually the first thing you hear seems right. And if all you're hearing is you, <laughs> I like being right. Is that a surprise? Because you do too. But I like being right. And you might have this idea like, well, some people like being right more than others. Okay, fine. But we all like being right, right? I mean, I work hard to be right. I, I try to research and find out facts and details. And I want to have right opinions. I don't want to be wrong about something. And if I'm wrong, I want someone to show me. And then I'll change my opinion. I want to be right. But let me just give you a definition of humility that I read this week that was really confronting. This definition of humility says, I don't always have to be right. I, I can actually let it go, and I don't have to be offended. The thing that changes all of that is, is love. It really is. We talk about love a lot as Christians, and I think what happens sometimes is we get confused in our society today. The definition of love has gotten clouded and changed, and it's as if people have rewritten definitions about a lot of words, but love is one of them. Think about how you use that word love, and we're so callous and casual, and you know, we love pizza and, and uh, of course, barbecue. And, uh, you know, we love our dog and we love, we, love, we love our spouse, right? And our kids, right? You probably love your truck, right? We define love in such a weird way. It's, usually our definition of love is, is so selfish. It's, it's how we appreciate things or what those things do for us or if we like them. It's all so, so personal, how it affects us. But that's not what God means when he talks about love. His definition of love is so different than that. His definition of love, probably the most simple way I can say it is, it's what's the best thing for the other person. It's other-centered. It's not about you, it's about them. And it's about what's best, and really he's the one who knows what's best, best. It's the cosmic best. It's the ultimate best. It's his best. It's not selfish, and it's not always even what that person wants. It's what the best thing is. You know, the Greeks, they had a lot of definitions, different words for love. And I, I wish sometimes our language was a little more specific like Greek is. And you probably heard this before. But like, for instance, for the word love, they had this word eros, which meant um, more of a romantic love. They had a, a word for love called storge, which was a family, kind of a familial love. They had uh, phileo, which you probably relate to Philadelphia. It's a brotherly love. Then they had this agape love, which God talked about, the Bible talks about constantly. And that's the, self, uh, the self-restricting, the giving love that God has. It's all about the other person, not about him. It's what's best for them. As a parent, I think we get close to that because you love your kids and there's certain things you do for them or restrict them from out of love, which from their perspective doesn't feel loving. You guys remember what that was like? You remember what it was like when you wanted to eat candy all the time and they said no? You remember what it was like when you wanted to play in the street or, or do something else dangerous and they said no and you felt unloved? Or, or even if it's, maybe you're a little older and, and you wanted to stay out or go a certain place and they just said no and you felt it was unloving. But from their perspective, they were doing the best thing for you because they love you. They love you. What, you. what is best for you is the best thing and they love you. The world has corrupted this idea a lot of ways. You know, and you think about it, a lot of times what we want is what we want, and we think it's best, and it's not best. 
I, you know, there's times where someone's in a lifestyle that I know is not God's plan for them. It's not. It's not healthy. It's not good. But a lot of times they're offended and their attitude is, if you love me, you would just approve of what I do or, or get on board or celebrate it. And I can't do that and love them. Not really. Not if I see that as a destructive road or sinful thing that's going to corrupt them and hurt them. That's not loving to do that. When, when you choose to not be offended, I think what happens is you're seeing past somebody's exterior and their behavior and you're loving them in a different and a, in a deeper way because you're seeing in them what God the creator sees in them. Somebody who he is pursuing. Somebody who he sent his son to die for. Somebody who their soul is worth everything to him. Somebody that he is constantly seeking. Can we, can we look back at that Ephesians passage again? Let's, let's look at that one more time. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. It's about them. What do they need to hear? If I'm offended, I can't, I can't even be thinking about that. I'm thinking about me. That it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, uh, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. So no unwholesome talk. Only what's helpful for building up others according to what they need. You have to really step outside of yourself and figure out what they need, that it may benefit them. That's God's kind of love. And he says, if you don't do this, you would be grieving the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit. Pastor Nick, if you could join me up here for a minute. What does he want to get you to get rid of? Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. What does he want you to do? He wants you to be kind, compassionate, forgiving. Why? Do you guys catch the why? Because Christ, God forgave you. <laughs> it's funny. I, I feel like there's times where I deserve this or like this or think this. And then I read a scripture like this and realize, man, you're doing it all wrong. You've got it all upside down and backwards. It's not about you. It's about them. And why? Because Christ forgave me. I asked earlier in the sermon, did you deserve grace? Do they deserve grace? I mean, we're quick to say they don't. I get it. But I know I don't. And I didn't. And because I didn't and yet God extended grace to me, then I extend grace to others and become unoffendable. Unoffendable. He leverages everything on this. He forgave you. You forgive them. This may seem like a weird question, but a lot of us have been Christians a long time. Do you remember being forgiven? Do you remember when you came to him maybe the first time and, and you, you bowed your knee and you said, I'm sorry for all these things? Do you remember that feeling of gratitude you had after that? Knowing that you were free? Because I think what happens a lot of times as you live the Christian life, yes, we make mistakes and we ask him to forgive us, but it doesn't have the same impact as that first time. And I think because of that, we have less patience and less grace for others because we don't remember what it was like. I want us to do this for a minute, to just extend that kind of grace. 
A kind of grace that what it does, instead of us getting angry, maybe your response would be compassion instead. Because you realize they are lost. And I know the answer. But if I'm angry and hold an offense, I can't give them the answer. They won't hear it from me because I'm offended. On the other hand, if I treat them like Jesus did and I serve them and I extend grace and love to them in a way that, that is the way he extended it to me, then, then maybe their heart will be open and God would use me to be able to the one to lead them to his grace and forgiveness. I talked two weeks ago about someone that only you can reach. And I hope you've been praying for people. I hope that you do this as you walk from place to place to place and you, you go around your daily business. Maybe it's at your house if you're still officing at home or if you're out and about at Quick Trip or wherever. And as you're out, that you extend that grace. That when you feel that offense, that you stop and say, God, I'm sorry, I'm really angry right now. How can I love them like you love me? Let's shut our eyes for just a moment, if you would. I don't know who needed to hear this today. I know I did. And I've been, been really going over it all week, thinking about how much I need to be undefendable. Maybe there's somebody in your life right now that as I've been talking, you've been thinking the whole time, okay, that's good, but not, not them. No way. Maybe that's the very person that God is putting on your heart right now that needs you to forgive them. Maybe as I've been talking, you realize that you've, you need forgiveness and you need to open your heart to God. And, and if, there, if this is true, that he can forgive you and cleanse you and make you new, that you need it desperately today. I'm going to invite you to do that in a minute. So I'm going to pray with all of us. Those of you who are watching online, those of you who are here in the room. And as I pray, what, what I'm going to ask you to do is, as I pray certain parts of this prayer, that you would pray along with me. Don't just listen to me prayer and pray, and I'm not asking you to repeat after me, but to agree with me as I pray. And the parts of this prayer that affect you, that you would, you would grab that and say, God, yes, forgive me. And if you're listening to this and you need a new and a brand new relationship with him, that you would grab that as well, and you would let us know about that. Please pray with me. Father God, I come before you as a... As a as an imperfect person, somebody who struggles daily with, with being more like your son. I want to be like you. I want to I be unoffendable. I want to be the kind of person who, who when, when things happen, I see the need there and my heart goes out to them. And God, please forgive me of the times that I've held anger or felt like it was my right to be angry. Forgive me of that. God, I pray for those who, who may be here in the room or listening who need to turn their lives over to you. God, if we are sorry for the things that we have done that are wrong. We, we want to live with you. We want your life to be our life. We want you to come in and make us new and change every part of us. God, that's what we want. We want a life with you that starts now and goes on into eternity. Father, I think of those who we are interacting with on a daily basis, and I just pray, God, that you would help those uh, that need to know you for us to have an opportunity and the words to say at the right time. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Would you all stand with me today? I want to thank you for being here today. If you've joined us online, if you're here in person, and God bless you, it's good to see you. I know I saw some people who haven't been back to church this whole time, and it's great to see you in person. And, um, we, just, we just love you, and we're, we're glad to have you. If you're new with us, again, there will be some, some on the screen if you wanted to respond or if you have questions. We're always available to you. If you need prayer, you can always email prayer at crownpointchurch.com. Remember to put the E on point. 
at Pointy Church. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in Christ. Amen.